Okay, uh, so we're going to be reading from Joshua chapter 2 today, uh, verse 1 to 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads out in pursuit, oh, sorry, <laughs> that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard of how the Lord dried up the river of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all of whom belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives are your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that, so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless, we, unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on our own heads. We will not be responsible." As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills fought at the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thank you. Thank you, Brianna. Not easy to read a long passage like that, but helpful to hear the scripture read. We're going to take a moment to pray and then unpack some really important lessons that come out of that passage. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we want to thank you for your word, for your word to us today. We would pray that as we spend some time reflecting on what your word is saying to us, that we'll be mindful of what it meant to the original recipients 
and understand what was going on there, that we then might make some applications that we can learn from and that might turn us to the author of grace, Jesus Christ. Lord, let the gospel be central, we pray, to our reflections today. Let us consider your greatness, your glory, your call to faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 16 years of age, which is only a few years ago, I had the opportunity to join a Scripture Union beach mission team in the seaside town of Portland, not too far away from here, only seven hours or so, and I learnt something that in my youthfulness I had never realised because I'd grown up in a church and pretty much stayed within the boundaries of that church, and that is that faith could be found in all sorts of places because on that beach mission team we had people from all sorts of different churches, even, believe it or not, different denominations. Who could possibly imagine that God could be at work in those kinds of places? And that was a real life lesson for me. And in some ways I think a life lesson in the passage that's just been read for us too, for the Israelites, because one of the key lessons that you might take away from this passage this morning is that faith can be found in all sorts of unusual places and it certainly was found in the life of Rahab the prostitute. What an unfortunate kind of appendage to her name, isn't it? She's always known as Rahab the prostitute, even in the New Testament, Rahab the prostitute. But the fact that Rahab's known as Rahab the prostitute is probably intentional. Have you ever thought about that? not just to identify her as a particular Rahab, but intentional in so much as it's a story of a woman who went from this to this. And so Rahab's story is a story of God's amazing grace and the goodness of grace. And even wearing that label, Rahab the prostitute, would remind anybody through history who might reflect on her life of what God can do. And God has done. For Rahab is one of three women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's mentioned in the Hall of Faith fame, the Hall of Fame of Faith, say that three times quickly, in Hebrews. She stands amongst the giants in the Scripture as one of faith. And it may seem to be an unusual passage to speak about when we've celebrated a baptism. In fact, when we were first planning the baptisms, we were thinking probably a week later uh, when it may have been a little easier to kind of manipulate the passage to fit the service. Uh, But you know what? We didn't have that opportunity today (laughs) for various reasons. But I'm glad because as we've celebrated faith this morning, so we speak now about faith in this passage. Let's take a few minutes to have a look at some of the key elements and Ivan just so you know I've left the clicker in the box so you're in charge of whatever happens on the screen. Thank you. (laughs) The story begins with Israel on the cusp of entering the promised land and it's rather interesting that when Moses sent spies into the land years earlier you might remember he sent 12 spies And only two came back with a positive report. And so I wonder whether this time, as Joshua was faced with a similar kind of a task to send some spies into the land, whether he thought, I'm not going to have that foul up again. This time I'm only going to send two. And so two spies went in. It's possible that uh, Joshua actually also was thinking with a military mind because it's far easier, isn't it, for two to sneak around and find their way about the countryside than it would be 
of 12. Rather interestingly, at the start of this story, we're not told anything much about their activities other than they were told to go and look over the land, especially Jericho, and so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. This tells us that the author of the account is actually very interested in the story of Rahab. In fact, the whole chapter really is about Rahab, isn't it? It's a rather unusual uh, insertion into the grand story of Joshua and so we should prick up our ears and say there's something important going on here and something that the author of this passage wants us to notice, wanted people to take notice of. But one of the unanswered questions and possibly a question that you've had too is what were the Israelite spies doing going into the house of a prostitute anyway? It's an awkward question and unfortunately uh, the answer might be a lot less interesting than we imagine. The evidence of the passage, broadly speaking, and of the context would suggest to us that they were not going there to avail themselves of professional services, if we can put it that way. That would be not only contrary to their instructions, but contrary to the worldview that they stood for. Here's a couple of other ideas. It's possible, it's just possible that Rahab's increasing anxiety about the future of the city and growing realisation that the Lord God was doing something, that the Lord, the God of Israel was working in the land. It's possible that she'd been hearing this amongst the community and so the spies recognised her as a possible ally, as somebody that they could go to as a safe haven, if you like. It's also possible to make the argument that Rahab was actually no longer practising in that particular business, but that her house remained as a well-known place of lodging. It's, uh, it's possible that it was frequented by visitors who came to the city, uh, kind of like an inn, uh, hence the connection with the spies. And that would account to how Rahab knew so much of what was going on around the countryside, wouldn't it? how she'd heard what the Israelites were up to. But there's some other rather interesting evidence in the passage too that we should examine, uh, including the fact that she had a large quantity of flax stalks on her roof drying. Now, you have to use your imagination because uh, I haven't got a photo of flax stalks. Long, leafy plants that were used to actually make uh, clothing and material. She had a large enough quantity on her roof to hide two fully grown men. Why would she do that? That quantity of flax actually suggests that she was in the clothing industry. And that doesn't kind of sit well in tension, if you like, with, uh, with that name prostitute. And if we jump ahead uh, in the text just a little bit, but we'll come back to this a little later on, uh, you note that she arranged to lower the spies from the wall on a scarlet cord. Now, it wasn't that Rahab had been to Bunnings and picked out from the array of ropes and cords that you can there the prettiest one. A scarlet cord was rather interesting in the time in so much as it was used to transport dye from the place where the dye was collected to the place where the dye was infused into the clothing. So if we could take um, uh, an example of someone who's wearing a lovely pink jumper down here for a moment, uh, where does the pink come from? Well, it's obviously from pink sheep, right? Right! <laughs> I've never seen a pink sheep. 
It's from the dye. Now, of course, in ancient times, they didn't have the technology that we have now. Dye was extracted from stones and rocks and, and so forth. It was infused into a, a kind of like a hemp rope, something that could hold the dye. That dye could then be transported easily and it could be sold easily and a small piece would be cut off the rope and placed into the dyeing cauldron or whatever it was to make the pink jumper that Wendy's wearing this morning. And to have a rope long enough to allow some spies out a window down onto the ground, we don't know how far it was, of course, but to have that amount of hemp, uh, that amount of, uh, of scarlet rope would suggest someone who was actually running a significant business. And although this is purely speculative, we have no strong evidence other than what I've just presented to you, uh, we'll never know for sure. It's rather interesting to reflect on what was going on there in Rahab's house. What we are told is as soon as the spies entered Rahab's house, she had more visitors, men from Jericho, who'd been sent by the king to have these visitors, these spies, arrested. Now the question is, how did the king of Jericho know so much about what was going on? Because there's an awful lot that the king of Jericho did know. He knew that they'd entered Rahab's house, perhaps someone had seen them, Perhaps he assumed because that's where visitors to the city went. He knew that they were still together. He knew that they were sons of Israel. He knew exactly when they arrived and he knew their purpose. He knew that they were there to spy out the land. How could he have known all of that? The answer to that question would seem to be that the king of Jericho also had some spies. And in fact, the kings of the Canaanites, the, the village city-states around uh, that area were probably watching very, very carefully as this group of people, these Israelites, moved in the land. And so there would have been some significant anxiety, as we see here expressed in the passage on the part of the king of Jericho. But in verse 4, we're told that Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. She'd managed to conceal them under the flax on the roof of the house as though she was anticipating the search and then proceeded to lie to the men that the king had sent to search for the spies. And if you pause at this point, you'd have to say, this was a bit of a test for Rahab, wasn't it? Where was her allegiance going to lie in that moment? She'd grown up, as far as we know, she'd grown up in this pagan city of Jericho. She'd grown up in a community that worshipped the false gods of the Canaanites. Her knowledge of the one true God was... It at best could be described as its very early stages. She hadn't known much, but she was prepared to respond in faith. And uh, in many respects, that's exactly what God calls us to do as well, isn't it? Sometimes we run into people who say, you know, I'll just have to wait until I've got enough faith. I'll just have to wait until I'm right. I remember one hilarious time when I was conducting a funeral years ago, a fellow who perhaps had been part of the church earlier on came walking in and he was kind of going like this. And I said, Keith, what's the matter? And he said, I'm just making sure the roof doesn't fall in on my head. I said, why would the roof fall on your head? Well, you know, me and God, we're not that close. I need to kind of take some time to get it right. Well, God doesn't actually say we need to take some time to get it right. He says, take a step. Take a step of faith. And this morning, as uh, we have celebrated with Eliza and Aaron, it's tempting perhaps to look at young people and say, gosh, you know, they're so young, what do they know? It's 
But God honours faith. And God doesn't ever say you need to have this much faith. He says you need to have faith in me. And on another occasion, if I have the opportunity, we'll speak about the fact that it's not how much faith we have, it's who we have faith in. And Rahab expressed her faith in the God of Israel and hid the spies and passed the test. And in this respect, Rahab is held up by the author of this book as a model of faith for the Israelites. You see, have a look at this contrast. The children of Israel had experienced the miracle of God parting the Red Sea so that they could cross on dry ground. They'd actually been there, for goodness sake. And they were the ones who continually rebelled against God, the ones who continually turned their backs on God. They'd been shown so much, they'd been given so much. And Rahab had only heard about it and yet she was prepared to step out in faith. The children of Israel received the word of God by direct revelation. Moses was up on the mountain. They saw what was going on. They heard about what was going on. Whereas Rahab had only heard about this second or third or perhaps even fourth hand but was prepared to take a step of faith. And God honours uh, honors us when we take that step of faith. And even with this light and with this revelation, the children of Israel constantly turned their backs on God. They indulged in all sorts of horrible sin, but not so with Rahab. She responded with the little faith that she had and confirmed the premise that's emphasised in the passage, a premise that I've already spoken about. It's not how much faith you have, it's all about who you have faith in. Well, the passage tells us that the king's men went hurrying uh, after the non-existent trail the spies had taken, all to no avail because, of course, they were hidden. Shortly uh, leaving, hiding for a few days before recrossing the river. But there's a very interesting conversation that's recorded for us in verses 9 to 14 and then continues in verses 17 to 21. It perhaps should be read as one conversation. And Rahab gave the spies an account for her actions. She said, I know the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. Back up a chapter to where we were last week when Matt was speaking to us. The emphasis there, of course, was be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, the Lord says. Be strong and courageous and take the land. That's the message for Israel. That's the message for the people of God. And as they're stepping out, what's happening to their enemies? They're melting in fear. The anxiety levels are increasing. Their, their fear, their, their nervousness about what's going on is beyond the pale. They'd heard about what had happened at the Red Sea. They'd heard about uh, a couple of Canaanite kings, Sihon and Og, uh, sorry, Amorite kings, uh, who'd been defeated by Moses. Guys who just thought they'd give these Israelites a thumping and who in turn had been thumped. The whole city was in fear and anxiety. Here's Rahab's opportunity to get out of town. And if I'd been Rahab, I probably would have uh, made a case to these spies, take me with you, get me out safely. Let's not hang around this city any longer, especially if the deception was discovered by the king of Jer uh, Jericho. Can you imagine what would have happened if Rahab had been sprung? If the spies had been found? She risked her life. The temptation for her surely must have been to get out of Jericho as fast as she could. And yet something rather strange happens. She very unselfishly asks for protection, not just for herself, but if you come down to verse 13, 
for the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them that you will save us from death. Her request to the spies was that they show kindness to her just as she had shown kindness to them. You might want to just check out Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 in your Bible because in my Bible, the one I'm using here, it actually says, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Unfortunately, this translation misses a really important word, which is found in the original language. In the original language, it says that Rahab welcomed the spies with peace. She showed kindness to them and so in turn asked for kindness to be extended to her. And as a result, the men of Israel agreed to the plan conditional upon a scarlet cord being hung from the window of her home, the same cord that had been used to facilitate their escape. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's uh, take a few seconds just to reflect on some of the things that we might take from this passage by way of application. Even though this passage is a long way from the New Testament, which we think about as being about God's action in bringing salvation through Christ, even here we see evidence of God who wants to save all people. Evidence of God who reaches out to all people. The activity of God through his people as they made their way towards the promised land was being seen by everyone around the place. The whole region was aware of what was happening. It was a witness and a testimony to the activity of the God of Israel. Most of the people responded with fear. But Rahab responded with faith and was incorporated most intimately into the family of Christ. This passage also demonstrates to us that God can and will use the most unlikely vessels to fulfil his purposes. You remember at the start of the passage, verse 1, Joshua instructed the spies to go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. It's almost as though God knew he was doing something. It's almost as though God had a plan, isn't it? Go into the land, especially Jericho. And what happens here, you'd wonder whether God might have had his fingers in it. If we jump into the New Testament, we read something kind of strangely similar in John chapter 4, verse 4, where Jesus felt compelled as he was travelling from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem to go through Samaria. Jesus felt compelled to go through Samaria. You might remember this story, because as he went through Samaria, he met a very strange woman, a woman sitting at a well, a woman who was an outcast in her community. And Joshua chapter 2 and John chapter 4, two chapters in the Bible, focus on women whose reputations had been soiled, but women who responded in faith. Remember the story in John chapter 4, it's a great story. This woman who was sitting by the well in the middle of the day, ostracised by her community and recognised in Jesus, I found the Messiah. What does she do? She raced home. It's a great passage. She raced home and said to her friends, her countrymen, come, I've found the Messiah. She's the first Christian missionary in the New Testament. What a great reputation to have. 
And yet she was another one of these ones like Rahab whose background uh, was uh, damaged and uh, we don't know. Oftentimes people like this, they're more sinned against than sinned. We don't know the context. We don't know the context for Rahab either, what brought her to the place that she was in life. But we do know that God's grace breaks through those places. And this passage is also a beautiful illustration of how God cares for individuals, particularly individuals who've fallen into serious sin. A whole chapter is given over to the faith of Rahab. A whole chapter in John chapter 4 is given over to the faith of the woman at the well. And there we see in Jesus too the same kind of engagement, interacting with individuals, thinking about individuals. He ministered to the crowds lots of times, but he was also concerned for the individuals. There's passages, there's another one of my favourite ones from John, you know, Jesus walked into that crowded pool where the, the crippled and lame were lying there waiting for the waters to be stirred up. Whoever gets in first has the promise of healing and Jesus picked his way through a great pile of people and grabbed one guy who'd been there for 38 years and he asked him a really strange question, do you want to be healed? It's actually not a stupid question at all because he'd been there for 38 years, kind of got used to life and Jesus picked this guy up and said, you are healed, off you go, cared for the individual. You remember the story when Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, there's a guy up in a tree, a tax collector, what was his name? Zacchaeus. Jesus reached out to this individual up in the tree and said, come on Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. Plenty of other houses he could have gone to. Jesus reached out and touched lepers, he cast out demons, he healed an official's son. Goodness, he saw a guy who was blind and he spat and he made some mud and he put it on his eyes and he healed the individual. You remember those little bracelets that were popular a few years ago? WWJD, what would Jesus do? How on earth would you know what Jesus would ever do? You think about some of those examples. You know, I met a guy who was blind down the street, what would Jesus do? Grab a bit of mud, slap it in his eye. (laughs) How could you ever know? What would Jesus think? That's a good question. How could we respond as Jesus might respond if we looked at others in the way that Jesus looked at others, mindful of the fact that Jesus constantly looked at individuals? He taught the crowds, he ministered to families, he trained a group of disciples, but he never lost sight of the individual. And there's something the church needs to be mindful of. And we see in this passage that God honours true faith. As I said before, it's not how much faith you have that matters, it's who you have faith in. Jesus himself said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you'll be able to command this mountain to go and throw itself in the sea. And Rahab had active faith, that's worth noting too. Her faith gave birth to actions and in a sense the New Testament imperative is at work there too because faith gives birth to actions. Faith is validated by actions. Rahab's faith took God at his word. Rahab's faith produced self-denial and it separated her from the lives of her pagan neighbours. Rahab's faith caused her to be concerned for others and Rahab's faith caused her to be bold in asking for God's help and so her family was saved. We know from later on in the story she obviously acted on the request to hang the scarlet cord from her window so that when the Israelites attacked the city they were able to identify her house and protect her family. Let's talk for a moment though about the scarlet cord. 
Commentators love to make much of the scarlet cord. You know, it's a metaphor of the blood of Christ. There's a scarlet cord running through the whole of the scriptures, that sort of stuff. It perhaps takes us back to the blood painted on the door jams of the homes in Egypt prior to the Passover. There's all sorts of stuff we could talk about in relation to the scarlet cord. But one uh, that I think is worth making mention of in light of the testimonies that we've heard from Eliza and Aaron this morning. An observation that's relevant to anyone who's accepted Christ as Lord. As the girls have testified today, they affirmed something that the cord reminds us of, this scarlet cord. Insomuch as the cord was hung on the outside of the house, not the inside of the house. And it reminds us that the work of salvation is something that God does. It's not something that we can do ourselves. Because we can put all sorts of energy and effort into saving ourselves and it's all to no avail. Salvation is a work first, foremost and finally of Jesus Christ. It's a work that is beyond our capacity. It's a work that's outside us. And the scarlet cord hung on the outside, a reminder that that's the work of God. This saving work is beyond us. It's a gift of grace and love from Christ. Only God can remove the effect of sin. Only God can restore us into relationship with him. That's why Jesus came and died for us. And the assurance of salvation is likewise something that arises from the outside as well. We can't generate that feeling of safety or security. It's something that God gives to us. It's something that God gives us out of his grace. Our assurance, our hope is not built on whether I feel good enough or whether I feel righteous enough or worthy enough. It's dependent on who God is, on, who, on what God says. It's dependent on what Jesus has done for us. And the scarlet rope was hung on the outside of the wall, a witness too, in a way, to the activity of God to the rest of the community who must have wondered what is going on there. Just as our service this morning has been a witness to the activity of Jesus Christ in our community. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we're going to gather at the table and continue reflecting just for a few moments on the last couple of verses of this passage, which are very meaningful to us as we gather around this table. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, again this morning we give you thanks for your word that speaks to us and points us consistently to Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we see you at work right through the scriptures, right through history. And this morning we pause to give you thanks for the gift of faith. We thank you for the faith that you've given to us that enables us to respond to you. We thank you for the faith that you've given to us that enables us to serve you. We thank you for the faith that you've given to us that enables us to be secure in you. We thank you for the faith that you've given to us that helps us serve you. Lord, we thank you for examples of women like Rahab, one who in her community perhaps carried a reputation, perhaps unfairly, 
but one who was incorporated into your family in the most intimate way because of your love and only because of your love. And we thank you that's true of anyone who responds to you in faith. We thank you for the testimony that we've heard this morning from the girls of how they have experienced that. And we pray today, Lord Jesus, if there are others here amongst us who are reaching out in faith that's uh, just fragile, as, uh, in a sense feeling weak, inadequate, Lord, just fill that up, we pray. And enable each of us to respond to you in a way that will bring your love flooding into our lives, give us peace and strength and assurance in abundance that we might know personally that Jesus Christ is Lord. As the scripture says, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The last couple of verses of Joshua chapter 2 are very informative. Just as a reminder for you, the story goes, the two men started back, they went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All of the people are melting in fear because of us. What an encouraging story that must have been for Joshua to hear. There's two words that jumped out of that passage for me as we do come to the Lord's table. You might remember, of course, uh, as Jesus shared, the, uh, shared with his disciples this last supper, this Passover supper, uh, the tradition was passed on and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes i love that last phrase you proclaim the lord's death until he comes the last supper <laughs> i keep using that word the lord's supper is a proclamation. It's proclaiming the Lord's death. It's proclaiming the gospel. It's proclaiming the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a testimony. And in this passage from Joshua chapter 2, the spies went back and they told Joshua everything. They testified to what they had seen. And within this, the Lord's Supper, there is also assurance because the work that Jesus has done in dying for us is a finished work. We can be confident there's nothing else that needs to happen. And in the passage from Joshua chapter 2, they said to Joshua uh, these words of assurance, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. There's confidence in moving forward, Joshua. There's confidence, confidence for us too in moving forward in trusting Jesus Christ. We're going to read a passage from Colossians chapter 1 uh, which highlights for us some of the assurance there is in Christ as we come to share these elements. Our communion table is open this morning to anyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you to participate with us. It's a, a, a lived out demonstration of what Christ has done for us, his body which was given for us, his blood that was shed for us. And Colossians, Paul speaks of Christ in this way. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the core of what we come to celebrate today, the peace that God has given to us through the shed blood of Christ. And so this morning I invite you to participate with us in what we would call the second ordinance of the church, baptism being the first that we've celebrated today, something that Christ has commanded us to do. And so as we gather today, we share this meal together. Let's pray and then we'll ask our stewards to serve. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the exalted words that we've just read here from Colossians that remind us that you are fully God, that you are perfect in every way, firstborn over all of creation, and it's true that all things have been created by you. We read that throughout the scripture. Things visible, things invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things created by you and for you. You are before all things and you hold all things together. You are the head of the church. You are the firstborn from among the dead. And so this morning as we've heard through these elements as we see represented here this testimony to who you are we take assurance too from your word that you are the one who is able to save us you are the one who's been able to deal once and for all with sin you're the one who gives us life and freedom we thank you that the first song that we sang this morning reminds us that death has been arrested death has been stopped in its tracks by Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And as we take these elements this morning, we don't take them lightly, we take them with seriousness because of what they represent. This bread that reminds us of the body of Christ, tortured for us, put to death for us. The cup, the reminder of the blood of Christ, shed for us once and for all. Lord, we sit this morning in awe of you and express again our love for you. Amen.